for the reading of God's Word as we launch into a new series, an Advent series that will kind of name the overall series Shadows of the Savior in the Old Testament. This morning we find ourselves in the book of Genesis, chapter 2. The focus of our time in Genesis 2 is going to be in verses 15 through 17, and then later in the sermon we'll go to panel 5 and look at some of the text in Genesis 3. But for now, I'm going to read all of Genesis 2, verses 15 through 25. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, friends, if your house is like mine, you've recently had the experience of smelling your heater come on for the very first time this fall. Unfortunately, at the church office, we did not have this experience because it would not come on. And we in the church office wore heavy coats like we were living off the grid in Alaska. It's safe to say we do not do cold well here. Now deacons, don't worry, we got it fixed and everything's fine, all is well. But the fix, the fix was not straightforward. After thoroughly inspecting the unit and not finding anything wrong, the technician surmised that it's the thermostat that was most likely the culprit that the thermostat was not communicating with the unit outside. Based on my vast experience, that made sense to me, and so he went out there to check. I have no experience with that whatsoever, so obviously that was a joke. But after looking further into the thermostat possibility, he discovered it was working perfectly, so that was not the problem. Then he thought, perhaps it's a bad motherboard. I didn't even know there was a motherboard in the unit outside, but there is, which would have been terrible had that been the case, because there are no motherboards available due to the supply chain crisis. And we would have all been cold for a very long time in the office area. 
Honestly, last week we talked about bringing in space heaters. We were so pitiful. Our technician then got on the phone with Train, the manufacturer of the unit, and after dialogue with them, was able to trace back the problem slowly, carefully, meticulously back to its origin deep inside the unit. You see a very small wire had come loose over time due to vibration. And just tighten it and all was well. It is amazing to me how something so small and so seemingly insignificant could cause such a big problem, could shut the whole unit down. And really, as Chris has already alluded to, that's how many people feel about man's first sin in the garden. It's how I used to feel many, many years ago. I mean, how could such a, such a seemingly small and insignificant thing, like the eating of some fruit, how could something so small like that cause such widespread and universal devastation. And yet we all know that's exactly what happened. In fact, every single problem in our world, every tragedy, every trial, every injustice, every premature death, every death at all can be traced back to this one act, this singular act of rebellion. You know, it took a lot of detective work to find the problem, and the heater turned out to be a very easy fix. Just tighten the water, tighten the wire. Sadly, the same thing cannot be said for the problems that were created by Adam's sin. No, no, no. That fix, that fix was incredibly difficult, very tough. And so in this new Advent series that we're starting this morning, we're going back to the beginning, like that technician, slowly tracing slowly tracing the origin of all of our problems and see how God fix it. Tragically, like I said, it took much more than simply tightening a wire. So let's go to our initial scripture text in this series, Genesis 2. We're going to be looking primarily in verses 15 through 17, which gives us the greater context of the fall. Keep in mind that when we look at these verses, Moses, the author of Genesis, he is zeroing in on specific days or specific events on day six of creation. He is zeroing in on specific events on day six of the creation week. That's where we are, day six. All right, look in your bulletin, chapter two, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so it was into this beautiful, wonderful, very good world that God made a garden, a very special garden, the Garden of Eden. And into that garden, God placed Adam to work it and to keep it. And the context or the conditions of his residence there was based on a covenant. We see that covenant in Genesis 2.16. 
the beginning of it. We call this the covenant of works. God gave Adam certain work to do. Theologians call this a period of probation, a period of testing. There were certain conditions under which Adam was called to live in this garden paradise. Genesis 2.16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. The emphasis there is on God's lavish generosity. You may surely eat of every tree. The surely there is an emphatic. Surely you may eat of every tree. God's graciousness was bountiful and wonderful. God was incredibly generous. Surely from every. Genesis 2.17. With the exception of one tree. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, there's that emphatic, you shall surely die. Now, last week we heard about a variety of trees throughout Scripture. This is where it all started. This is the first tree. And I, like I said before, I can remember reading this text earlier in my life and being totally confused about why eating from the tree of the knowledge and good and evil would be a bad thing. I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to know, right? The difference between good and evil. Isn't that what we're supposed to inculcate into our chil children? The knowledge of the difference between good and evil. How could eating this be a bad thing? But of course, after thinking about it for just a moment, you really have to already know, in a sense, on one level, the difference between good and evil for this test to have any meaning. Adam was created with the knowledge that obedience to the word of God was good and disobedience was evil. And so, in a sense, he already knew about good and evil. That being the case, what was this tree all about? What did it symbolize? What was its meaning? Well, we've got to go to the next chapter to find out what's really going on with this tree, which is on panel five. But before we do, let's briefly review. Okay, Moses has already recounted what happened on the creation days. And then in chapter two, he zeroes in on specific events that occurred on day six. God created Adam, placed him into the Garden of Eden. The garden was good. The only thing that wasn't good is that there was no suitable helper for Adam. So God created Eve out of Adam's side, and she too is now in the garden. And everything is so good. Think of the most wonderful place that you have ever been, and it cannot begin to compare with the Garden of Eden. This very special place, within a special place, that God had uniquely and specially given to Adam and Eve where they would walk with him and enjoy fellowship with him in the cool of the day. Every morning when I get to work, you may have Microsoft operating systems like mine. When you wake up your computer, you get this, like the screensaver just pops up, okay? And then I have to type in my ID. And they put on there 
the most tantalizing, wonderful screensavers that you have ever seen. Imagine bleary-eyed, you get to work on Monday morning, and then up pops the most beautiful island paradise that you have ever seen. And it really disrupts, you know, sometimes the beginning of my day. It takes a while to recover, like, I'm not there, I want to be there, I'm here. What's wrong with this picture? Well, think of the most wonderful place you have ever been, and it cannot begin to compare with the Garden of Eden. When things were quiet due to COVID, you know, we figured that, you know, we had some time, time to do some things around the church office that we had not had to do before. And so my office badly needed some renovating, badly needed some renovating. And so we put in some new bookshelves and, and some precious friends around the office helped add some new decor. And they said, what kind of prints or pictures would you like in the office? And I thought about it. And you know how I love the coast of South Carolina. And so they found the most wonderful coastal marshy scene I have ever seen in my life. It is this beautiful picture of this marsh and these wonderful trees with Spanish moss. And then the sun is, is covered by clouds, but, but the light emanates from there. You can see the reflection off the water. I don't care if it's photoshopped. It is the greatest thing I have ever seen. Somewhere I long to be. It kind of symbolizes perfection to me. It cannot begin to compare with what the Garden of Eden was. The Garden of Eden in this pre-fallen world where everything was good and where Adam and Eve walked together with the Lord God in the cool of the day, it's just, it's too wonderful to put into words. And so juxtapose that with an evil, a horrible, malevolent force that enters that garden. Satan. And he explained what he thought the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would provide to Adam and Eve. Let's go to panel five. Let's look there now. Chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent, the Bible clearly associates, identifies the serpent with Satan. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so from this we know that Satan exists and he's fallen and he's here. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which was obviously not what God had said. So right off the bat we see Satan trying to subtly plant this seed of doubt, subtly distorting the word of God by portraying God as more restrictive than God was? What were the key words in Genesis 2.16? Key words there that, that described God's generosity, his graciousness. God had told Adam, you may surely Emphatic, you may surely eat of every tree except one. God's generosity was so 
bountiful. So incredible. Also notice that Satan omitted something. Can you, can you see what Satan omitted when he quotes what God had said? He omits God's covenant name. Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Up to this point, God is always described as the Lord God. God's covenant name, Yahweh Elohim. And now when Satan begins this dialogue with Eve, he removes God's covenant name, slowly trying to distance the intimate, personal, covenantal God, okay? Just calling him Elohim, trying to create some distance, some subtle distance between the Lord God and his people. Last but not least, Satan circumvented God's creation order. He went after the woman. God had designated Adam as the representative of all mankind. That's who Satan should have negotiated with. He did not start negotiations with Adam. He started negotiations with Eve. His goal was to subvert, to cause chaos, to sow dissension and division, to divide and conquer. Incredibly cunning in the worst kinds of ways. Verse 2. You can already see her trust in God fracturing. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. What does she leave out? She omits something now. Satan first omitted something, now she omits something. Of course, surely and every. She omits the emphatic, she omits the every. Not only does she admit something, what does she also do? She adds something. Okay, she is mirroring Satan. She adds a restriction. God had not said you can't touch it. God said that you can't eat of its fruit. She intuitively knows what Satan is getting at and she, she mirrors him. She's taking his lead and not the lead of the Lord God. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So, that, so there he does quote the emphatic. Okay, you will not surely die. That's not going to happen. Verse 5. For God knows. So Satan's getting down to, to the brass tacks, to, to the bottom line. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, the problem is God is holding out on you. He knows that you will be like him. He understands that if you eat of this forbidden fruit, you won't be dependent on him. God is afraid of what will happen if you eat of this tree. He is portraying God as restrictive and controlling, arbitrary and restrictive. Selfish. This is fascinating. What, what is embodied in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You see, according to Satan, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will make you like God. In what sense, though, I ask you, will it make you like God? He's saying you will be like God Knowing good from evil. What was he really saying? 
He was saying, if you eat of this forbidden fruit, you will be like God in that you will be able to determine for yourself what is good and evil. You will control your own destiny. You will decide who you are and who you want to be and what you want to do. You won't have to be dependent on him. You will enjoy moral autonomy and independence. That is the root of the rebellion in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't a small thing. It wasn't a minor thing. It wasn't a no big deal thing. It wasn't just a matter of eating some fruit. In eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve would be saying, I will determine what is right and wrong for me. Satan says, Eve, God is holding out on you. He's being too restrictive to you guys, and you guys know it. And he continues in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, even though the Lord had already given them every good thing that they needed. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. Notice this, who was with her. And he ate, which implies he was there the whole time. And did absolutely nothing. He did not intervene. He did not try to stop it. He did not try to get in the way. Or rebuke Satan. He quietly acquiesced. And let it happen. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together. And made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves. They just instinctively felt the need to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you? That you were naked. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The blame shifting begins. The man said, the woman with whom you gave to be with me, um, um, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil opened their eyes in the sense that they now knew in a very experiential way. They knew alienation from God. They knew shame and distance in ways that they never would have. This gave them knowledge, all right. It gave them knowledge of sin. What a tragedy. What a cosmic tragedy that occurred in that garden. Everything that the Lord God had made was good. Every fruit of the tree was good through his acts of creation. What had God demonstrated? He would say, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be, and there was, and there was, and there was, and there was. God had demonstrated through the power of his word that every single thing that he spoke into existence occurred exactly like he said. 
Satan's temptation, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Last time I checked, in whose image were Adam and Eve made? They were already like God in the best kinds of ways that mattered. They had everything they needed. They walked with him in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. But they had free will and they doubted God's character and they were drawn to the idea, pulled to the idea that they would be able to decide for themselves what was right and wrong, what they were going to do, who they were going to be, how they were going to live. And in a sense, that is the essence of all sin, bottom line. It is moral autonomy. It is a declaration of independence that I will not have this man to reign over me. It is as serious as it gets. It's hard to put into words the magnitude of what occurred in that garden and the process of death and dying and alienation that began the moment that Adam ate of the forbidden fruit. He wanted independence of God from God and that is exactly what he got. He thought that God was a liar. After all of this, that's essentially what it was, eating of the forbidden fruit. It was an accusation. You are a liar and you don't have my best interest at heart. And all we've seen ever since is death and destruction. That's what happened in that garden. And those seeds of rebellion are planted in the hearts of every single one of his posterity. That is our baseline desire. Every person in this room, the preacher that is preaching, Nate very thoughtfully explained, like original sin is the guilt that gets imputed to us from Adam's moral rebellion and the law of sin. Okay, it's, it's our sin nature that get, gets passed on to us. So, so the very sin that Adam committed Okay, that same sin nature, that same inclination, that same ethical force is at work in you and me desiring autonomy with God as our deepest desire. And here's where, we'll, here's where we will end. It's really in God's response to this that we see his character come through. It's really in God's response to this, that we see our first shadow of the Savior. Obviously, if it were me, I would imagine if it were you, it would be very tempting to just banish them forever. And God does. He banishes them from the garden. But do you remember why? Why did God banish Adam and Eve from the garden? He banished Adam and Eve for their good. Because if they would have eaten from the tree of life in that fallen state, they would have been stuck in that state forever and ever and ever and ever. And so in banning them from the garden, kicking them out of the garden, and putting those flaming angels with their flaming swords barring the way, that was a grace. It was a grace and a loving kindness to keep us from being confirmed in that state forever. But that's not all. The graciousness of God in his response, look at these words, some of the sweetest words in all of the Bible, the shadow of the Savior, the seeds of the gospel that are sown in Genesis 3. In response to this, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, 
said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You will end in humiliation and defeat. Verse 15, I will put enmity, bitter hostility between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring, Eve's offspring, would be all of those that the Lord would draw to himself. The spiritual offspring of Eve. Believers in the Lord God. Verse 15, I, the Lord God, will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. He, notice that, all the way back. To Genesis 3.15, the first shadow of the Savior. He, singular, he, this seed of the woman, he shall bruise your head. That is a mortal blow, a death-imparting blow. He will bruise your head, and you, you will bruise his heel. Is it not, not amazing at the beginning of Genesis? A clear prophecy of the way that it would all end. Satan would bruise the heel of the Lord Jesus. Satan would influence a community of people to crucify the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. And the greatest irony ever, God used that to deliver his people. Through that crucifixion and that death, the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the one, crushed the head of the serpent. There would be no basis for any accusation forever more. It was in response to this rebellion that God promised a Savior. And like we said before, it was no easy fix. It took nothing less than the Son of God being hung on a tree for you and me. This is the first shadow of that Savior that we're going to trace out for the next six, next six weeks. Pray with me, our gracious God and Father. We thank you that you did not leave us in that estate of sin and misery. We thank you that you did not allow Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of life, which would confirm them in this state forever. Thank you for your graciousness, for your discipline in, in removing us from the garden and prohibiting re-entry and for promising that a rescue plan was already in the works. That is mind-boggling that in Genesis 3.15 we get the promise of a Redeemer, of a Savior. Father, for the next six weeks, keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, fix our eyes and our hearts on Him. What is the only, only answer to the biggest problem in our lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.